0: This show is distributed by some let Next go!
1: Welcome to episode 169 of TechSync, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Alex McCaw, who's a published O'Reilly author on JavaScript and CoffeeScript, and also an entrepreneur. Hey, Alex, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, great to be here. Yeah, thanks for uh, coming on. You have a lot of interesting stuff going on, so it sounds like we have a lot to talk about. Why don't you just give us a little bit about your background, who you are, you know, what you, where you've been, what you've done, and then we'll go into some more specific stuff.
2: Sure. Well, um, I basically left school when I was 17 um, uh, and then joined a, did an internship in London and did various consultancy work in London. Did a startup um, called uh, Social Mod first and then Task Force, um, which was based in San Francisco. And then decided, uh, for me, Task Force didn't work out and I decided I wanted to move to San Francisco permanently. So, um, Basically, I decided I wanted to get a visa out here. And to do that, I was write a book and increase my likelihood of getting an O one one visa because I didn't have a degree. So I traveled the world for a year. I wrote uh, two books, in fact. Um, The second one has just got published. And got the visa. And now I'm working for Twitter out in San Francisco.
1: Wow, you make it sound so easy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, why don't we start with um, your... um, you're traveling, your world travels, because that's kind mm-hmm. of an interesting um, story, I think. Um, you were almost like a you were like a gypsy coder or something. You spent, what, how long traveling the world and writing code?
2: That's right, a gypsy coder, yeah. I've traveled uh, for about a year. I went through about 17 countries, across Africa, Asia, North, South America, everywhere, really. Um, and just code as I went, yeah, on the on the buses and in, like, you uh, know, huts in... South Africa with no electricity, <laughs> just writing writing the book and coding open source projects.
0: Now, was your idea that you were going to write a book on this trip, but that was the whole point, or did you decide to start writing a book while you were traveling and you, thought, and you figured, why not?
2: Well, the idea was to, first the idea was to write the book, and I got, made sure I got the contract with O'Reilly before I left. Okay. and then um, And then I was like, Well, if I don't want to be sitting home writing a book, why not just travel the world and write a book? (laughs) Uh,
1: How did you get the contract with O'Reilly if you were kind of unproven at that point?
2: um, Well, uh, I had an intro with um, uh, Mary from O'Reilly through a mutual friend who uh, used to work at Google. And um, then I basically just put together a few proposals. In fact, I um, approached several uh, companies and um, Ben was lucky enough to get
0: accepted. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that sounds pretty, um, pretty lucky. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's got to be more to it than that. I mean, just you happen to know somebody get an intro and say, hey, I want to write a book. And the premier technology publisher says, <laughs> fine, go ahead and do it. I mean, you must have had some kind of background or something more than a great you know, PowerPoint presentation. Well,
2: yeah well mate, I'm smoothing over some of the details. I mean I, I'd done a ton of open source work in the past, and uh, so that was a big um, you know plus when, when it came to approaching O'Reilly. Um, I'd already done uh, a, you know the first chapter, I think um, and I guess the proposal was good. I mean not all um, I f- approached a few publishers, um, not all of them uh, were willing to take the risk. O'Reilly did um, and it paid off. Uh, they didn't actually they didn't give me forward because I was just a, um, sorry, in advance, uh, because I was just, you know, a 20, Unprising. 20 year old traveling the world. Yeah. Pretty much.
1: Uh, oh
0: man, you were only 20 at the time. Wow, yeah. Okay. Hey,
1: just to, ju- just a heads up, like on, on the show, we take, we don't like to let our guests get away with miracle functions going from A to C. We, we always like to find out what the B was. So.
2: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so yeah, they, they took the they took the um the chance, and I guess it I guess it worked out for them.
1: And so your express purpose for this originally was you were thinking if I can get a couple of published books, I can get a visa in America. That was actually what you were thinking at the time.
2: Uh, I mean, yeah, that's yeah, that's not it. That's not completely um it. I mean, getting an A one is is very tricky, and there's a lot of criteria you need to fulfil. But that certainly helps. Uh, and so I was like, um, perhaps I can increase my chances by. Um, uh,
0: writing book. You
1: know it's easier to it's easier to marry an American.
0: That is correct, but probably more <laughs> expensive. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't you explain a little bit about the visa situation? Because I I've heard of the H one B, right? Is the H one B visa? Yeah. And then there's H one N one bird flu virus. <laughs> <So, laughs> I assuming they're not related. So what are all the different uh visas and in in, in- why, yeah what was when you were trying to apply for and everything
2: well h one b is the usual one um and that's pretty guaranteed to get but you need to have a degree to get that um, and you need to have a degree in the actually in the relevant field so you need to have a degree in um in computer science i uh, as i uh, i would like to prefix all this with i'm not a lawyer so speak to a lawyer <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but um uh, because this stuff is really tricky um but yeah. H1B is the usual one and there's a certain allotment per year. So you need to make sure that, um, you are in that year's allotment. I think the one this year's allotment is run out. I'm not quite sure, but, um,
0: it's run out in February, by February. It's already done.
2: Is that right? Okay. Uh, uh, oh, is uh, that what you're saying? Oh, well, I think so. Um, don't quote me on <laughs> But
1: your one wasn't the H1B, right? You came over on something different.
2: That's right. Because I didn't have a degree. So I, um, I'd, I, had to think of, diff- uh, choose a different path. Um, and luckily, there is uh, different ways um, of qualifying for visas, um, and yeah. So, but but I knew at the start that I, either I was going to have to go to university and do a degree, or I was going to have to find some sort of different degree. Uh, sorry, a different visa.
0: Okay, so what was the, the one that you're, that you came over on is the what visa?
2: O one. one And, and, and what's? Is a uh, alien of extraordinary ability. So there's various criteria that you need. Um I think there's about um eight criteria. Um uh like a high salary, being on a co- um conference committee, um being a published is is a few of them. but um, oh,
0: being a published author, so you figured of the criteria that would be your best shot? Uh
2: yes, you need to fulfill a bunch of these criteria. Uh, oh so it's
0: not just one, you have to you have to Yeah, you can fulfill, fulfill more?
2: Th- yeah, three of them at least.
0: Three of them. What were the three that you that you were able to
2: uh I can't quite for. recall. Uh, well, I know one of them was a the published one and one was a high salary one. I can't recall the third one.
0: Wait, wait. wait. And what, 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 is, what, consi- what is considered a high salary?
2: Um, considered, um, it's, it's comparable to the rest of the industry. Um, but that's, uh, that's like what, an, over
0: 100000 or something? Which...
2: Yeah, that's a legal definition. You just have to make a legal argument, I guess.
1: Do you think that the, the, the kind of strictness and the difficulty of getting that visa hinders or helps the American economy and the tech economy?
2: Oh, it uh I mean it hinders it. I mean obviously they have to be uh have to be strict, um to otherwise it would be a major loophole. I mean it took me about four months of paperwork to get that. Um and that was like full on, like a full on job um doing that. So uh but but it, it, yeah, it hinders it. And I'm sure um that they well I hope that they introduce um a startup visa or some sort alternative. because uh, the UK has had a startup visa for a while now. Um, and, and I just wish the U.S. had this something equivalent.
0: How much did it cost you in, in legal fees to make that happen?
2: Uh, well, luckily, um, uh, Twitter sponsored me.
0: Oh, okay. So this was, okay, right. So you had already sort of engaged them as in, in being in applying for a job and, and, and got that underway. way. I
2: already got the job. Yeah. Getting the job is not difficult out here. Um, there are a lot more, um, jobs uh than engineers but the visa is the trickiest situation
0: sure sure so you never went to university or did you drop out earlier what happened
2: i dropped out when i was 17 i didn't go to university No. um yeah it wasn't um it wasn't for me i'm not a um i'm more of a right brain than a left brain guy and i wasn't too keen on the abstract stuff at university
0: so so Justin also dropped out, right? Or was, is kicked out the same thing. Justin? <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> kicked
1: out. I just, I, I didn't even, I didn't even get to the anywhere past my just most basic GCSEs. So I'm, I'm pretty much since 16, I've been out of the education system. Yeah. Same. So,
0: um, yeah. And that was the same for uh, Peter Cooper. We've had on a few times. Yeah, Peter Cooper. I mean,
2: you're out here. It's actually the norm to have dropped out of university. Um, It's so common.
0: Wow. That's okay. So you, so why don't we just back up just a little bit then? Because so, when you drop out of school, what are you thinking? Like, what are you going to do for a living? I mean, if you do that in the U.S., it's like okay, so you're going to go like do construction work or uh, you know work at uh, fast food wait tables or something. I mean, it's not your job prospects are usually on that are usually not all that great in the U.S. without yeah. a college. Yeah,
2: it's days. it's true. Um, but I was pretty self motivated. Uh, I mean, at school, I'd basically was doing consultancy uh, and earning like more money than my teachers, and I was. Um, basically it was affecting my grades, you know, I was concentrating too much on doing consultancy. <laughs> so, um, I decided that, uh, well, I got an internship luckily at school, um, uh, before I left. And so then I went to London and, uh, for a company called Revu and I learned a hell of a lot there.
0: Right. And, and so how long were you there before you decided to go on your world travel?
2: Oh, I was, I uh, read for a year and then I was, I uh, worked for a consultancy called Made by Many for the best part of the year as well.
1: Jason, the perspective in England, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, is um, I think that people, well, a lot of people can think of coding as like an apprenticeship career where <laughs> you don't necessarily need to go to university, you don't need to think about that stuff, just get in, get your hands dirty and really start doing.
2: Absolutely. And I, and I, I bet you if you ask um, computer science majors, they would tell you they had to, you had to teach themselves programming. It's not part of the course. Um, They may get some sort of module on Java or something, but they're going to have to go home and actually teach themselves.
0: Right, and were you were you one of these kids that started coding when you were like twelve or thirteen? You had like a Uh, just writing your own video games or something.
2: It was actually quite late, uh, (laughs) fifteen.
0: Fifteen. Okay, you're a late bloomer, I guess. (laughs) 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 And and um, so well, I actually. Before we move on, just one last question about that. So when you're, you're 15 or so, or how, how old were you when you started uh, getting consulting contracts?
2: Uh, about 15, yeah.
0: How does a 15-year-old get a consulting contract?
2: Uh, I've done a, a ton of open source work. People approach me all the time, emailing me. Um, hmm. Yeah. And was- so
0: open source is always the, it sounds like that's the best first step to get started is, is to building any kind of credibility.
2: Absolutely. It's like an artist's portfolio. Open source is, I think, crucial to any software developer's uh, CV.
0: And what did you build? Um,
2: I I built uh, Juggernaut, which is a flash socket server so you can push real-time updates to clients. Uh Um, And I built an open source CMS.
1: Yeah, that
0: sounds like that's almost like a requisite. Well, he's got uh, he's got I mean, at this thing. stage,
1: you've got quite a lot of open source stuff. But I guess we're talking about when you were much younger, right? Yeah, but at this, yeah. At this yeah. stage, you've got spine, which is a light, a lightweight framework. Yeah, we'll,
0: we'll get into that. I want to get into that once we get because he talks about it in one of his books. But so when you're, um, when you're 15, you're just messing around with this stuff. Now, when you did these open source projects, were, you, were these your own projects you started? Or you jump in as a contributor to other existing projects?
2: Uh, always my own. Um, I mean, I've done a few contributions, but most of them have been more recent.
0: I mean, it's, it sounds to me, I mean, I, I, this is something we've covered a little bit on, in past interviews, is like whether it's a better idea to jump on a bigger high-profile project and try and get um, some commits in there, or whether, it's, or whether you should start your own, even if there's not many people using it, because then it's like your name on it, right? I mean, it's like, are you the 50th person contributing to some project, or are you the guy? What are your it, thoughts on
2: that? That's true. Um, and, I, and it's quite nice being able to control um, how things are developed. So they're developed in a certain style. Um, but I would say if you are um, just beginning, then you don't want to be, uh, well, it might be difficult to get patches accepted into some large projects because you just won't have a clue about best practices or what not to do, what to do. So you could just play around with your own software and basically learn as you do.
0: Right. And did you contribute to any? Other a larger project, or do you just work on your own?
2: Yeah, I've contributed to uh, to Rails a bit. I've contributed to uh, probably half a dozen other projects.
1: Have you contributed to Bootstrap at all, uh, Twitter's? Twitter's?
2: Not, not yet, no. But I've um, I've been working on a few other open source uh, libraries that, well, potentially open source libraries here at Twitter. So we should see those being open source in the next few weeks.
0: Right. <laughs> so, um, Justin, I was thinking maybe we jump into the uh, the traveling. You? Yeah, go for it. Unless you have more questions. So, um, so this is the gypsy coder segment. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, okay, I, um, I got this you know, book deal. I can just sit in my apartment and, and do, it my, do it that way or I can travel. So you figure out you're going to travel. Now, did you come up with the idea of traveling to a bunch of places out of the gate? Was it pre-planned? Or were you like, well, I'm just going to go to this first place, and then I'll just figure out my next move after I'm there?
2: Well, I got, the, I got the bug for traveling a year earlier, when I basically quit my job and went surfing in South Africa for three months. Um, so I already knew I wanted uh, to travel more. Um, and the way that I chose the countries was uh, there's this blog called Stuck in Customs. And this this guy called um, Trey Ratcliffe, and he does this HDR photography. I've been following it for a while, and these photographs are absolutely beautiful. And, so, and this guy has the life. He travels around the world taking these photographs. And so I just went through his blog and chose all the most interesting and beautiful places that he'd been to and basically made a list and then bought a round-the-world ticket.
0: And what was your list?
2: Oh, uh, well, uh, I can list them all. I mean, it started off in um, South Africa, and then it went to Asia, like Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, and then Japan, Australia, and then just going moving east, basically.
1: Did you make any, um, on, on your travels, as you're coding, did you make any business connections <laughs> and kind of any entrepreneurial connections as you're traveling around or were you mainly working with people online?
2: Uh, a bit. Uh, so basically before I went to any major city, I would ping up the Ruby uh, user group um, and say, anybody interested in meeting up. And uh, often the case was yes. And so uh, I even the case was coming to stay with me. So like <laughs> a lot of places I was put up uh, like in Japan, you know, in, in Australia, I met, um, uh, t- a ton of other Rubyists. In Costa Rica, a guy just tweeted at me. He said, I've just read your book. Um, do you want to come for a free surfing tour in Costa Rica? Uh, and so I said, yes. Wow. It's <laughs> <Absolutely.
0: laughs> quite an offer. Yeah,
2: I know. I, it's, it, I was incredibly lucky.
0: So, um, of your time traveling, what percentage of it was staying, with, staying as a guest at, in someone's home versus staying in a, a hotel or a hostel or something?
2: Mm, about 80 20.
0: Eighty percent staying with people.
2: Oh, sorry, uh, staying in hostels eighty, staying with people twenty.
0: Okay, so it was kind of like a nice break. Everyone's once to while, you get a nice.
2: Yeah, it, especially in the more expensive places um, like New York and Japan, um, and also places like in Japan where um, it's it's harder to travel, and uh, there are a few hostels.
1: Hey, I have a question. How did you encounter the 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 whole SF and American? Um, tech scene from from uk like what what brought brought it to your consciousness
0: uh, you're jumping like an hour ahead that's that's not jumping ahead (laughs) that's like part three no no
1: hold on i'll tell you why i'll tell you why that's not because that's part of the part of the reason why he went traveling in the first place Mm -hmm. so um as an inspiration for him he obviously had discovered that at this point so it's not jumping ahead
2: well um i guess hacking news or you know all the blog posts the whole time you're hearing about how awesome san francisco is um, I mean, it's been the mecca for entrepreneurs and that's, I knew it, that's what I wanted to do. So, um, I basically went out there with task force, um, and was there for, for three months. Um, just, um, uh, you know, basically absorbing the scene. and, uh, decided that I wanted to stay here permanently.
1: Uh, the reason why I asked that question is because m- myself, the way that I discovered uh, this whole scene was through podcasts a uh, Twit podcast in specific. And it, I was you know, there in, in the UK, traveling back and forward to work and listening to the Twit podcast whenever it came out and gradually being introduced to all of the possibilities in America. So.
2: Yeah, yeah, Twit podcast, I uh, also, I always listen to that one. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right, so, so you, that was before you went on your travels, your, your task force, your three-month task force. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it? Okay, and then you went back to England and then you went on your travel sometime. Yeah, I now.
2: basically did a month of consultancy in England to pay for it.
0: Oh, good. Okay. And so, when you were traveling, you were just you were staying in hostels. You weren't even staying in hotels. Uh, it depends. In uh,
2: in Asia, where it's very cheap. Um, like Vietnam, I was in hotels.
0: Okay, but then hostels in like Japan are more expensive.
2: Yeah, Japan, Australia, New Zealand is hostels.
0: Yeah, because that would wipe out your budget in like a week. I would imagine. Absolutely. So, we, I mean, how, what, what percentage of the time were you just working alone, or were you at least did you have people you could travel with? Because I would think that you would get kind of lonely on the road not knowing anyone around you and just sitting in a cafe or at a restaurant typing away on your laptop
2: absolutely you think that but actually uh it's it's more social than I am now i mean there are hostels where you can meet people i mean in in cambodia i was traveling with a um, like three or four other guys um it was yeah there's always someone to meet and also when you're traveling alone it, it forces you to talk to people uh and and to meet new people
0: Was it because, now, if you had had stayed at hotels primarily and not hostels, then that probably would have been the case, right? Because when you're at a hotel, you don't just go up to other people in the lobby and say, hey, man, what's happening,
2: right? Uh, That's correct. Yeah, hostels are definitely part of that.
0: Yeah. Well, what was your budget? Did you have, like, a specified? um, Yeah,
2: yeah. So the the total amount I spent over the whole year, including flights, food, and accommodation, is $20,000.
0: That's it for an entire year?
2: Yeah, and I was eating out every night, so I wasn't doing it cheap.
0: Wow. And how much of it did you make along the road while you were working, doing consulting work, and how much had you had saved up? I didn't make anything. Um, Oh, okay. So you were just working on the book? He did a month's worth of
1: consulting and and paid for the whole year.
0: Oh, I see, I thought thought from your blog, I, I thought I understood that you were writing the book and also doing some consulting work, but no consulting work, just writing, working on the book.
2: That's right, just writing.
0: Well, how... How was your productivity while traveling? I mean, Justin, we just had a, uh, a funny few discussions about that when Justin took a six week workation. I'm doing <laughs> that with air quotes that you can't see. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where he went to Ireland and England and he's like, Yeah, I'm going to work. I'm going to get a lot of stuff done, then hang out with my old friends and family. And as it turned out, it's if I had to guess by, ta- by just our conversations, he was working at like maybe a 10 to 20% productivity rate. <laughs> I mean, what was your. What was your productivity level versus, say, if you were sitting in an office, you know, for eight to ten hours a day?
2: I would say about the same. Uh, basically, I, I, it depends who you are, but I love what I do so much that I actually had to tear myself away from it and go down to the beach and relax or go for a walk. Um, so for me, that, was, that part of it wasn't a problem.
0: Were you sitting – where did you do most of the work? Were you sitting in a cafe? Because I can't imagine sitting in a hostel on a, a, a bunk bed or something. You'd get much done.
2: Uh, both. Yeah. Uh, working from bed, from cafes, um, both.
1: If you're focused, it's quite easy to just zone everything out, right? Just everything becomes background noise and you're just working.
2: Yeah. Yeah. My mom's mistake was to buy, um, I took a MacBook, um, a bit one of these big 15 inch MacBooks and I so wish I'd taken an air because I had to lug that thing around everywhere.
0: Right. I mean, if I guess a fifteen inches isn't, isn't that big, but I guess if you're just traveling around, it it starts to add up. Yeah,
2: time. when you have to carry everything on your back, it's uh, yeah, it, it adds a well, lot. If you're of writing weight.
0: a book anyway, I mean, you don't really need a lot of power, right? You just yeah. want battery life and in portability. Exactly. Well, well, I mean, in terms of battery life, did you have to carry around a bunch of batteries?
2: Uh, no, I just um, tried to. Um, uh, preempt, you know, the places like in Africa where there wasn't going to be much electricity. Um, and, but most of the places, there, there are, there's a lot of electricity. And in Asia, there's a, also Wi-Fi everywhere.
1: Yeah. So, so, you're, so you founded Task Force App, or you're co-founder of that, if I understand. What, what's Task Force App and what's happened to it now? And what what's, what's the whole deal with that?
2: So Task Force App is a way of prioritizing your email. And uh, it took the form of a Gmail plugin. Uh, and it would basically um, it allow you to convert certain emails into tasks and assign those tasks to people uh, and also filter a lot of machine-sent email into an activity feed. So it would basically cut down on the amount of email you received so you could save time going every day going through your inbox. Um, and it got, a, it got a lot of users. It was very popular. Um, and I've co-founded this. Um, and, uh, and I actually left the company um, for various other reasons. I mean, it was fine, um, and it continues to this day. Um, I know um, Nick is uh, my co-founder is is working on it.
0: Wait a minute, I think I remember. I think I remember this on Hacker News. It's a YC. Oh. They
1: they went. They ended up being a YC company, right?
0: Yeah, they did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So now was that that before or after you left?
2: That that was after I left. Yeah.
0: Right, because I think I remember Nick writing a blog post about that about what he should do if he should get another founder because you know i guess you had left and uh-huh. that was that was a big part of it right i mean that was a big you know hacker news post on this wasn't there
2: yeah i mean it's always an issue when uh, a co-founder leaves uh and nick did extremely well
0: is, is, right. is, is this a sore subject or or can we talk about it
2: <laughs> uh we can talk about most of it yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> well so why did you leave what was the uh, what was the issue
2: oh i uh mostly i i left because um i i it was a personal thing i was at a point in my life that um uh, I decided that I wanted to be working on something else. Um, and also we had like Google release party inbox, which replicated in my mind, a lot of, uh, the functionality of the existing product. Uh, um, right. That's
0: what I remember from the uh, blog post that uh-huh. the guy's like, yeah, my co-founder left cause he feels like we got no shot now that what Google came out with and, and everything.
2: Yeah, I mean, and I'm, I'm not saying I was correct at all. And um, Nick's done a fine job in um, in going through YC and found another great co-founder. So.
0: Have they been able to raise money or or, or build a revenue stream, or how, how does it stand?
2: I don't know enough about that.
0: Okay, but it's still alive. It's still like a full time deal for for him. Yep, as far as I know. Are you still in okay. contact with those guys? Uh, yep, absolutely. Right. Oh, that's well, that's interesting. So, so. I guess it was a little disappointing, though, that you didn't get the chance to do the Y Combinator route, but I, I, get, I imagine you left before that whole thing even...
2: Yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah. I, I don't mind too much. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty certain I'm going to do um, something similar. Uh, I'm going to do my own startup at least um, sometime.
1: So how does that, I mean, how do, with regards to, I guess, working for Twitter, I mean, what, what's their opinion on people doing startups?
2: Oh, well, I, I mean, obviously, I'd, um, this is, that'll be after I finish Twitter. Um, uh, I mean, Twitter is uh, uh, very good when it comes to IP, so anything on your own time is
0: yours. Right. So, you know, I, it's, it's kind of interesting about the whole Y Combinator thing. I had a, um, a friend of mine I was just talking to a couple of days ago. He called me up and asked for some advice, and, and there was a group of them talking about whether they should, um, you know, do a company together or not. And, and I was like, you know, this is the time to apply to Y Combinator. If you already have a team together, I mean, it's kind of like not, I haven't been a writer in the twenties and not going to Paris or something. I mean, it's like, it's all yeah. ha- not that You can't do it outside of it, but if you're in your twenties and you can move and, and, um, you got a team or something, or at least a co-founder, it seems like it'd be silly not to at least give that a shot.
2: Absolutely. I mean, as from what I hear about Wacom later, it's an incredible experience. Um, I think they kept the number of startups at 60, uh, which is just as well, because it was getting a bit, um, big. Um, but as from what I know, uh, it's, it's, it's a really, really uh, good thing to do. Absolutely.
0: So, um, do you want to talk a little bit about the book writing or do you want to talk some more about the uh, task force? Anymore? Um,
1: well, maybe just, just quickly find out whether there was any other kind of entrepreneurial endeavors, side projects or anything like that, that he's, he started up or been involved in.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, um, uh, back in London, I made something called social mod, uh, which was a social media moderation service um, and that did pretty well. We had some major clients um, like Burberry and Cadbury's um, and BET. Uh, we, we basically uh, let people uh, post to our API some pieces of content like text images or videos. And we would farm uh, them out to Mechanical Turkers and moderate them. Um, and that did quite well. Um, uh, but I decided that uh, I wanted to work on task force. At that stage.
1: (laughs) So, so this this is like, it's a little, it's kind of like a pattern where you move from one to the next. This is
2: a pattern in my life. uh, And you'll see it throughout my open source work as well. It's the short term uh, ism pattern, and it's something that I'm trying to solve. So, what's
0: the Alex McCaw half life? Is it like six months or? (laughs) About, About that, yeah. I know, it's
2: terrible. And I've got so many open source projects that, well, not open source, but I've got so many half baked company ideas that I've actually. Uh, fleshed out, implemented, uh, and never got around to releasing. So I think I might have uh, one day where I do release it all and uh, basically release all the, all these projects that I've been working on.
0: <laughs> yeah, like a full brain dump. There's another company that did that. They did like 100 Node.js mm-hmm. projects. Mm-hmm. That they designed mm-hmm. GitHub. They just open sourced.
1: That's um, a very similar problem to the one that I've had until moving to the US um, and starting my company, Plugio.com. But previously to that, I'd done about 20 or 30 kind of half-baked businesses where I developed the thing, but when it got to actually releasing it and marketing it, I just, you know, yeah. just flumped. <laughs> yeah. Didn't get past it's that point. It's a um, final hurdle. Yeah, so keep at it and you'll get there.
0: What, what are your thoughts on, on working alone versus working with a co-founder? I mean, it sounds like, you know, the, the task force thing, I mean, maybe you had, you had a desire to leave or you you didn't. You kind of lost the faith, but, but yeah, the fact I mean, that you together might have helped get it to the point where it is.
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it it entirely depends on you as a person. Um, you know, whether you work well alone or, or work well in teams. Uh, and YC, uh, I know, um, are very loath to take in single person founders. Uh, I think statistically, they're much more likely to fail, at least in YC's eyes.
0: Right. Right. So if you so if you do a, a startup project, I mean, would you would you look for a co-founder, or would you just try to do it yourself?
2: Um, I think uh, there's a good analogy I heard, which is looking, going out and looking for a co-founder is like going into a bar looking for a wife. Um, <laughs> I, and, I, and I think I would, uh, I would do the project. And if a co-founder came along, uh, somebody appropriate came along, then that's great. Um, if not, uh, it's not the end of the world. Yeah,
1: right. Jason and myself are co-founders, and we actually had to do a podcast and get through about 120 episodes before we even considered doing business together. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: well, my, one of my, my um, hesitations was the fact that we were already doing the podcast, and I was like, well, we're going to be over-invested. It's kind of like doing a startup with your roommate or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, like I was a little concerned about that, but, you know, I think it was inevitable that mm-hmm. we uh, did something together. Mm-hmm. So um, why don't we talk about the, the book stuff? For a minute, if, uh, if you don't mind. Justin, are you ready to jump?
1: Let's go. Let's go, book. Okay.
0: So, you, you came with an idea to write a book. I mean, why did you want to write a book, and uh, what, what got you started on that?
2: Well, I wanted to write this book about JavaScript web applications for a while uh, because uh, I, it, it, it might sound um, a little pompous, but I, I saw a lot of JavaScript web applications being built, and I thought they were being built wrong. Um, and so I wanted to to write this this book, uh, basically because JavaScript is probably a misunderstood language, and to clear up some of the aspects of MVC on the client side, um, and yeah, and, and that's basically what it is. It's it, the book's about moving uh, states to the client side,
0: right? And I mean, it, it sounds like um, it sounds like it was a big deal. I mean, if you traveled for a year working on, it, I mean, how how? Why don't you tell us, talk us through a little bit about your process of writing. I mean, did, did you get a real quick rough draft and then go back to repeated revisions? Or did you go chapter by chapter, have it planned out? I mean, what was your, what was your process?
2: Yeah, well, the book took about three and a half months to actually write. Um, and and that was, uh, I was, I was doing it pretty uh, lazy for, I mean, it wasn't full on. Um, so basically, for if you're writing a book, then you need to write... Um, a proposal for O'Reilly and the proposal includes a brief summary of each chapter's contents Uh, and then basically I, um, in a mostly um, ordered fashion I went through the chapters and just wrote them um, and sent them off I had a bunch of uh, great technical reviewers um, and sent them off to the technical reviewers got a ton of feedback basically rewrote a lot of the book from that feedback um, and then uh, got it out to the real technical reviews. Well, to, to some of the same technical reviews and some additional ones from O'Reilly.
0: And, and what was that process like? I mean, once you had a chapter finished, I mean, how much working and reworking did you have to do?
2: Um, it was, um, uh, I, I guess, about it's about eighty twenty. It's the same rule. Um, and, but when the O'Reilly copywriter came through, and she basically changed every other sentence, basically... <laughs> Because my, my grammar was just not up to scratch. Um, and uh, she vastly improved it.
0: Wow. And, uh, okay, let me see if I can figure this next question. Um, Justin we might want to have to do a little editing here. Mark the time. Um, yeah, so what was your, um, your background in, in, in building JavaScript applications? Because it sounds like you did a lot of Ruby work. Um, I mean, yeah, what gave you the, uh, I don't know, the confidence that you could write a, a book on the subject?
2: Well, for Task Force, I'd done a ton of JavaScript stuff. I'd sort of reverse engineered a lot of Gmail to get the plugin in there. Uh, I'd written a, a, a library called Super, which never really saw the light of day, which was the precursor to Spine. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, I'd done quite a, a few uh, JavaScript projects in the past. And, fr- and frankly, what I was just doing was applying, you know, uh, concepts that are Commonly accepted on the server side to the client side, it wasn't. It wasn't anything that novel or new.
0: Right, right. Now, how, how has it worked out for you as a as sort of a financial um, endeavor? Is it? Is it? Is it sort of just as modest? You know, residual you get in, or is it? Is it something substantial?
2: Yeah, it's very modest. I mean, indirectly, uh, directly, it's very modest. Um, and, and and everybody will tell you that you're not gonna. Uh, make much money writing books uh, directly. Obviously, indirectly, everything came from it.
0: Yeah, because I, I guess your job at Twitter is sort of the result mm-hmm. of, of this book, right? Or at least. It certainly probably, helped. Absolutely. Right, because you couldn't gotten the, the having been a published author is one of the criteria for getting your, your visa. That's right.
2: So, right. Uh, ind- indirectly, uh, everything. Even if you uh, weren't looking to move to the US, I'm sure your uh, consultancy would do much better if you were a published author.
0: Right. Now, in terms of making money, have you thought of, um, say, like creating and selling, um, screencasts? I mean, a friend of mine who, um, wrote, uh, what's it, um, a rails tutorial, Michael uh-huh. Hartle. Uh-huh. I and mean, he's made, uh, he's done quite well. I think he, you know, I think he sells the book and gives away free as a PDF, but he sells the screencast or something. Yeah, And that's turned out to be, you yeah, know, a, a good way, a good way for him to make some income. And have you thought of doing that?
2: Absolutely. I know Peter Cooper does um, right. a, a similar sort of thing and it's, it's working out very well for him. I mean, there's a ton there's a of great success stories. Um, and that's, that's something, that, something that I would uh, potentially do because I love teaching people. So uh, yeah, that's definitely on the agenda.
0: Of course, you could always do the, 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 um, the seminar approach, which is what Amy Hoy does. I don't know if you've yep. followed much of her, what, she, what she's done, but I, I think she's made a good living off of uh, doing the seminars.
2: Absolutely. And, and Peter as well does the cinemas.
0: Right. Right. And, um, in your, uh, well, I guess we'll jump into the, your next book. Well, you know what, before I do that, let me ask you just a little bit more about some of your thoughts on the JavaScript. So you wrote spine, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a backbone type thing. or I mean, how mm-hmm. does it compare to backbone or JavaScript, MVC, knockout, et cetera? Yeah.
2: Well, I read it after I uh, wrote the backbone chapter of the book and, okay. um, Basically, I was like, I love Backbone. It's got some incredible concepts. I'm basically going to stand on the shoulders of giants and try and make a few improvements in my eyes, at least. Um, and uh, also, happen happened to rewrite it in CoffeeScript.
0: Oh, oh, so Spine is a CoffeeScript library. That's right. Just like Batman, right? Back, Batman is the uh, Shopify
1: yeah, yeah. NBC library. Here's an interesting example. How, how come you decided to kind of write your own one Rather than try and contribute and make uh, Backbone better,
2: yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's a tough call, uh, and we've had these uh, calls with similar libraries here at, at Twitter. Do we rewrite it or do we, um, you know, submit updates to the to the uh, original? Uh, for for Spine, I, I decided that my ideas were so um, we're, were different enough to make to make a um, a port necessary. Um, and uh, Sorry, not a port, uh, sort of, uh, basically a rewrite. I mean, it kept a lot of the, s- the similar API to some of the controller interfaces, but uh, it changed a lot of the internal uh, APIs, especially around models and collections.
0: I mean, it, it's, it seems like if, if you're going to extend it, extend functionality or add some kind of module, then it's something you might contribute to. But if you're going to fundamentally change the, the style of, of attack, yeah. Um, you know how how you're gonna frame things. Yep. Um, your uh, your coding conventions or opinions. Sometimes they call opinionated libraries. I mean, if you're gonna do that, you can't go and say, "Hey guys, love your stuff, but we need to re- we need to reframe this whole thing." They're gonna be like, "Dude, screw off!" You know. Well,
1: what about <laughs> yeah. the whole fork me on GitHub thing? I mean, you basically take it and fork it.
0: Uh, absolutely. Um, but like I said,
2: it was it was basically a rewrite. Um, uh, so I just used the same API. So that was. Uh, it was less of a fork and, and more of a rewrite.
0: Well, what's the, well, So if you had to describe the difference, the fundamental differences, what, what are they? Um,
2: so I would say um, fundamental differences. Uh, Backbone, because it uses collections, is much better for modular apps. Um, mm-hmm. And Spine, I think, is better for full-on web apps. Um, I know, Jeremy, you would disagree with me uh, with this, and he's probably got a good point. But um, that's a good distinction to make. And the, another distinction is async UIs. So the idea that you update the UI uh, before you send an AJAX request to the server. Uh, and that is something that Spine is quite opinionated about, something that uh, makes it very difficult to do, um, to use Spine if you don't like that approach, basically. Um, and that's a very key differentiator between Spine and Backbone.
1: Are you saying with Spine, you notify the interface after talking to the server or before? Before.
0: Yeah, I mean, that... I, I wrote uh, along with uh, a buddy of mine, Guyon, a um, a web based version of PowerPoint back in like two thousand and five, two thousand and six. Um, uh-huh. I've talked a little bit about the show in the past, and uh, I've wrote a blog post you may have read. I've got got you know pretty wi- widely distributed. Called "How I Screwed Up My Google Acquisition," uh-huh. and um, uh, essentially that was it was. This full-on, humongous JavaScript app. And we essentially created what is now like a backbone or spine on our own. I mean, we never mm-hmm. open-sourced or anything like that. But mm-hmm. when you build something of that size and that complexity, you have to. It's not just a bunch of jQuery um, stuff jammed into a page. I mean, it's like a full-on... Like we'd built the op- it's like we'd built it in, in, in C++ or something, but we did it in JavaScript. And we had our own MVC concept and everything. And one thing we did, which is exactly what you did, which is like... You know, when you create a slide or you create a shape or you do whatever, I mean, you don't like send it to the server and wait to get an ID back from the record. You you create it and you say, hey, send it back. And if you get an error from the server, then you go, oops, we got a problem. Uh-huh. But you just you're optimistic about it. And 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 something something that I know that Justin and I have even talked about offline and stuff we're working on is like, okay, let's say you create something, it needs an ID, but you need at Some point you need the ID from the database. we would you know create like a temporary ID, and then once we got you know the database record, got the ID from the database record, return to the API request, then you just replace the temporary ID with the ID I mean yeah that's, how does exactly, that play how,
2: play? Yeah, that's exactly how spine works yeah
0: um,
2: and you'll find uh, the, the key thing about these interfaces is they're fast and and, and speed makes such a huge difference to user experience um, and and the the vast majority of the time um, it, it is nothing's going to go wrong. Like, if, uh, if validations is all, all on the client side, ideally the only thing that could, should ever go wrong is when there's a bug in the server, uh, and then you can display a message to the client. And since that's going to happen so infrequently, I wouldn't put too much development time into it.
0: Right. Now, do you, th- do you think that you still need to do server-side validations uh, uh, on top of your client-side Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not very dry, but you do have to duplicate this too.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, why don't we get into your, your second book, The Little Book of Coffee Script. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you, the first book was published in August, at the end of August, 2011, so that's very recent. Mm-hmm. And then, at least according to Amazon, unless I got the dates wrong, mm-hmm. and your Little Book of Coffee Script is coming out at the end of the month, but I think I remember seeing this versions of this book out on PDF months ago.
2: Uh, that's right, so basically... What happened was O'Reilly approached me of writing a CoffeeScript book. Uh, I, I had no idea about CoffeeScript, and I said I couldn't write it. Uh, and then I started looking into CoffeeScript, found I loved it. And um, so I basically just wrote this book for two, for two weeks. I mean, it's not, it's not long, it's only like 60 pages. Um, I think it took me yeah, two or three weeks to write. Uh, and then I open-sourced it, um, and then uh, O'Reilly, we're like, oh, you've made this book. Um, do you mind if we uh, license it? And I was like, sure. As long as we keep the open source version up, um, that's absolutely fine. So O'Reilly have now licensed it. Um, I actually wrote two extra chapters. refactored a whole lot of stuff. Jeremy has added another chapter to the O'Reilly version. And I've just actually received the, f- the first copy yesterday.
1: One thing just to back up a little bit. Like, I don't think all of our listeners are familiar with what CoffeeScript actually is.
2: Uh, So CoffeeScript is a little language on top of JavaScript and it basically compiles down to JavaScript and it abstracts away a lot of JavaScript's nuances and bugbears, um, as well as having nice syntactical sugar. So it turns out that you can with a CoffeeScript program you can uh, with about the third of the source, um, you can write the same JavaScript program. Um, And of course it does compile down to uh, JavaScript, so you do have the original, uh, you do have the the hu- the end results uh, does get passed to the client, but the for a developer it's just much nicer in my opinion to to use than JavaScript. I love JavaScript, but I I wish I could never write another line of it. <laughs>
0: really? Because write... you think because JavaScript is just that much better in your in your eyes. Y-
2: yes, that's right.
0: Hmm. Now, what about the debugging aspect of it? I mean, I've always yeah. I've heard people complain to some degree. I mean, whether it's warranted or not, that it, that you know because it's sort of a com- when you're debugging it, it's back into JavaScript, right? Or, or is it? In, it's a yeah. you have to kind of figure out like, well, where is it generated JavaScript in, yeah. in my compared to my CoffeeScript, etc.
2: That's right. Line numbers don't line up, and that sort of thing. Uh, I I originally thought it was going to be a much bigger issue than uh, it's actually turned out to be. Uh, for me, I found that the CoffeeScript uh, basically translate line, line by line into JavaScript, so it's very easy when you see a JavaScript issue um, to go back into CoffeeScript. I've never had a single instance where I haven't easily been able to switch between the two. Uh, I mean, it does require a little bit of flipping in your head, but uh, you do get used to it. Uh, And that will be solved soon, as far as I know. I think Mozilla is adding um, something to its um, JavaScript compiler so that uh, it'll sort out the line number issue.
1: Do you code everything in CoffeeScript now?
2: Uh, All my stuff at home, I do, yeah.
0: So Twitter is still on JavaScript? Uh, Yes. Yeah, we've... um... And this is something I mentioned in the show. Our listeners are probably familiar with this fact, but I do a lot of consulting work for Uber, and you know I've built the um, the dispatching system on uh, mm-hmm. Node, and it's all JavaScript. And Curtis, who's who's worked on the um, the dispatch server with me, we've been talking about doing it in Um, mm-hmm. But the question is, you know, is it worth a rewrite? You know, we have working code. It's solid now. It's in production. And it's it's powering the company.
2: Yeah, um, I wouldn't do a rewrite. Um, yeah, I mean there there's some nice tools like JS to Coffee, which convert JavaScript to CoffeeScript. But um, no, I, I I wouldn't do a rewrite. Maybe just anything new you can write in CoffeeScript if you're keen on using
0: it. Right. Yeah, I was thinking of re. Uh, one of my upcoming projects is rewriting Godview, which is sort of like the. Um, yeah. Is the uh, it's like the air traffic control system for Uber. Um, mm-hmm. and we see all the cars and the clients. Everyone, you know, and the, and the big map and everything. And I wrote it in JavaScript. And I and right now it's like one giant file. <laughs> so it's all those things that you just write to get it working. And you're like, this is god awful. But yeah, you know, now it's like okay, time to rewrite it. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe script Maybe this would be a good good time to just rewrite it in script. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Absolutely. what's the learning curve like? Is this something that like I mean, uh, how you, much I, you, you can it in my? a
2: day? And maybe three hours at max. It's so simple.
0: Okay, so maybe it's worth doing. Maybe I'll just study it up on the plane, and then sit down in San Francisco tomorrow and start with <laughs> God and <viewing> coffee script. Awesome. <laughs> so, what are your thoughts on on iced coffee? Because that's like the um, that allows you to 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 save yourself the trouble of having lots of embedded um, callback yeah, functions, absolutely. which isn't such a big deal on client side. But when you get in server side, it can be a problem. Um, I mean. I think people make a little bigger deal out of it than they needs to. People who are new to it, they look at it and they're like, oh my God, they're like five embedded callbacks. It's so hard to understand, but it's like anything. It's like your eye gets trained to it and after a while you're like, it's second nature. But yeah. What's your um, thought?
2: Well, I've done a, a, a lot of uh, MVC node apps and definitely callback hell is is one of the issues. Um, and I actually solved th- this to a certain degree with um, uh, node fibers. I wrote a... Um, a server that basically wrapped all requests in a fiber, so you could basically program uh, synchronously, and behind the scenes, it would actually be all asynchronous. So, you basically, you could do an asynchronous uh, file uh, call, um, and and you wouldn't need a callback. Um, uh, and uh, but, uh, Ice Coffee Script takes a slightly different approach. Uh, one that is actually compatible with client-side JavaScript generates these anonymous functions. Um, so the one Issue I have with it, and, the, and probably the reason why it isn't actually going to be uh, embedded in CoffeeScript um, or, or merged, is the issue that CoffeeScript. One of the fundamental ideas is that a line of CoffeeScript translates into a line of JavaScript, um, and that's what Ice CoffeeScript goes against.
0: Oh, right. It's kind of like um, I mean, I guess Tame had that problem, right? You had it's like you had a two levels of, of you had to compile it, you had mm-hmm. to go and compile it. So if you're using CoffeeScript to be a double compile or something like that.
2: Uh, absolutely, yeah. It's it's harder to work out, uh, especially when you have this debugging problem at the moment. Um, yeah.
0: And so, no, but so your Node fibers library—that's just a library of calls. There's no pre-compiling.
2: Uh, yeah, kind of that's how- right. It'll only work uh, on the, obviously on the server side, um, but it extends the V8 interpreter. Um, I, I didn't actually create this. guy uh, really. A clever guy, Facebook, created it. Um, but it basically, Extensivate Interpreter added these um, these things called fibers, which I've been using in Ruby. Um, they're like very lightweight threads. Um, and basically, they let you program in this um, sort of synchronous style, but asynchronous behind the scenes.
0: Right. Now, have you, have you yourself done much node work? Uh, yeah. yeah, I've done, done a lot. What do you think? I mean, I, I, how much of a problem do you think callback hell is? I mean, do you think it's overstated or do you think it's something that's a that's a major issue?
2: I think it's enough of a problem that it would stop me from writing an MVC uh layer in code uh, in node. I mean, not an MVC layer, a CRUD layer. Um I would um rather uh, j- uh write the CRUD layer in Rails. And I think if if um if node can solve that problem and I think Fibers should be part of core. If they are part of core, I think that would go a, a large way of solving that issue.
0: Yeah, the way we solved that at um, at um, Uber was the all, the API is all written in Python. Mm-hmm. Everything that has all the CRUD layer and and and, and, this, and all the business logic on top of that is just a you know just an API call. So Node, the the dispatch server, which is all written in Node, is just sort of like the state. So you don't mm-hmm. have to constantly be looking up at like what drivers are on and what are the clients doing and all that kind of stuff. Sort of like triage, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so that you can kind of isolate your stuff uh, yourself from that kind of, um, they, like the crowd, crowd operations, which, we, which could, especially if you're doing error checking, add in many different layers of, or many additional layers of, of callback help.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you write your crud um, pro- yeah, you layer in some other language, sort of synchronous language like Ruby, then that's fine.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Justin, do you have any more questions about CoffeeScript? Or? No, that's interesting. Um, the
1: the ice coffee thing I hadn't heard of, the fibers thing sounds very interesting. Um, and I, I, I do hope that they do it, because if, I didn't realize that you couldn't really do the crud within Node I suppose you can, but it's very difficult. Is that what we're saying? Uh,
2: yeah, it just looks very ugly. It's it's um, just nestled, nestled, nestled callbacks.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, difficult in the sense that it's um, there's a mental jump that that you have to make, or almost like you have to get your eyes used to it. It's like when you're used to um, um, what's it kind of uh, when you go to functional programming from um, I don't know what's non-functional programming. I'm skipping my it's um. I can't think of the word, but when you look at functional programming, it's just, you know, like Lisp and you see function, calling function, calling function. It's not like a, a series of, um, of, of statements. It can be really hard to look at. It's like, it's so hard to mentally process that. But after a while, you, your, your mind adjusts you're like, okay, you can think in terms of you know functions calling functions as you can in terms of just a, a sequence of, uh, of, 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 calls.
1: So how, well, just one quick question about fiber, how, how does it do it? Like, what does that look like? How does it turn asynchronous into synchronous?
2: Um, well, it's just a, a, I guess a trick. Um, so every request comes in, it's wrapped in a fiber. Um, and then inside that fiber, so let's say you have um, some callback uh, that's creating a, a user. Um, basically you, if you call yield in that callback, uh, then that's going to pause the current fiber. Um, and then, uh, when, when your asynchronous course finish, then the fiber is going to continue running. Um, so in, in fact let's, let's say you're doing an asynchronous find on the database, uh, yield is going to be called, the fiber is going to be uh, paused and then when the, the record gets returned, we're going to continue execution execution in that fiber. So the issue the one issue that I found with the fibers um, was that the performance uh, was not up to scratch, and I'm sure that's just an imp- implementation detail. Um, if it ever gets included. So sort of
1: like a sleep until kind of thing.
0: Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so you're now at Twitter. What, what kind of stuff are you doing for them? So I'm working on the revenue team. Mm-hmm.
2: i working on the app platform here. I'm doing a bunch of front-end work. Um, and, and I just want to say that it's a really great place to work. There's great food. There's unlimited vacations. There's the cleverest people I've ever worked with. Uh, so if you are looking for a job, uh, then... Definitely come and apply here.
0: After you apply to Uber, though, oh, absolutely.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which is an even better place to work.
0: <laughs> where, where are you located? Where's the Twitter office located?
2: Uh, it's in Folsom uh, and Second. Oh, sorry, okay. Folsom and Third. Yeah.
0: Okay, so you're. That's sort of near uh, Union Square, right?
2: Uh, it's like yeah, four blocks away, four five blocks
0: away. Right. Okay. Yeah, I I have to go up to. The Uber office about once every three or four weeks. And so I sort of know uh-huh, the, uh-huh. the area. Um, but, uh,
1: Hey, I've got, I've got a question for you about, um, about Twitter. So I don't know whether you know, but I build a uh, plugio.com, which is basically a Twitter productivity app, something like Hootsuite, but, uh, obviously much smaller. Um, what do you, what, what are your concepts or thoughts about building a business on someone else's API or platform?
2: um well just make sure you trust them <laughs> i guess um and uh yeah it's, it's a tricky thing i mean it's been done with zinger and facebook um uh and it doesn't always work out um as there are tons of examples so yeah i don't think there's any clear answer you just have to make sure that um what you're building is not just a feature that can be implemented um and could exist as a separate company i guess is, is that is that fair
1: yeah i think it's fair
0: yeah, well, Justin had some issues with Twitter different times, you know, the back and forth. Because you know, if you're a small company and you you sort of inadvertently violate some rule <laughs> that you're unaware of, they can just shut you down, and then you're like I your think. whole business comes to a halt. So I mean, that happened what at least three or four times.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it has it's it's happened, and it's kind of like it's like bumps in the road. I mean, I guess it could be. Anything else that could be shut? You know, it could yeah. happen through uh, your provider or whatever. I mean, in fact, that has happened to me with um, providers with Rackspace a couple of times as well, when they may have just switched off some functionality or something like that. But you just have to kind of get through it and and work around it.
0: But it's a bigger deal though with with some with building on a platform like Twitter, because if Twitter just decides what you're doing, which could be a fundamental feature or value proposition for your company, and they just say, you know what, we're not going to let you do this anymore, you're screwed. It's not like oh my provider's down, I'll just go put it on a a new server somewhere i mean that's that's a much different
1: it is true but i've always felt that because twitter basically built their whole business on opening up their api and on third-party apps that's that's the whole reason why twitter's successful in my opinion Mm -hmm. like it would be a bit difficult for them to just shut down many 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 businesses i don't think that they could get away with it that's my opinion i may be naive about that
2: Yeah, I I agree. From what I know, at Twitter, the third-party ecosystem is absolutely crucial. Right. So how big is
0: the uh, engineering department there?
2: Uh, There's about 500 engineers.
0: Holy (laughs) smoke. That is unbelievable. (laughs) 500. Because you look at Twitter and you're like, yeah, it seems pretty simple. I mean, what do they need to do (laughs) at this point, right? It kind of runs.
2: Yeah, I know it's, um, it's it's a bit deceiving. There, are, there's a lot to do. A lot of massive problems. When you're dealing with scale, comes a lot of uh, big but interesting problems.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I, my that's something I have a hard time getting used to. When you have you know when you get beyond a half dozen people, it's like, well, what are all these people going to be doing? <laughs> <laughs> Curtis, who's the VP of engineering at uh, Uber, is constantly talking. He's like, oh, we got to get more people. You know, people. I'm like, you got like twelve people. <laughs> what mm-hmm. do you, Why do you what need do you more? Do you do? <laughs> absolutely <not. laughs> I mean I, I just yeah I mean they're obviously putting them to work and they're obviously building things out but it just it's hard so you know when I have if my brain has a hard time processing what 12 people can do I, I mean 500 people I don't even know I mean those are like legitimate engineers you're not talking about people who happen to work on the same floor as engineering I mean, these are people who are literally writing code
2: uh, absolutely absolutely I mean we got um, we got half a dozen teams here um, and yeah, each team has ranging from ten to thirty people, That's
1: and great. and I get, I'm assuming they're all as at least as clever, if not cleverer than you are, right?
2: They're all they're all very clever. Yeah, that, I mean, I don't think I've ever worked with such um, intelligent people before. It's 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 inspiring,
0: right? It's it's funny. You look at the the whole San Francisco Bay Area. It's like there's like a brain drain from the rest of the country to that. It's <laughs> like if, if the Bay Area got nuked. <laughs> Trouble.
1: Yeah, we'd yeah. be screwed. It
0: would be. <laughs> if there was a virus that hit that area, there'd be a serious IQ. The average IQ of the country would drop probably 10. <laughs> Again. So, what are your thoughts on working for a company that size? I mean, you, something, you'd been on your own, traveling around, writing books, doing a little two man startup, and now you're part of a uh-huh. one, a, a member of a 500 person engineering team. What's, how do you feel yeah
2: it's it's uh it's incredibly different um and it gets a bit of a bit of using uh, getting used to um uh there's a lot more process a lot more protocol um uh, than the startup uh and the and these things make sense when you're dealing with something that's uh, as large and as important as twitter then obviously there needs to be a lot more process um but yeah i've settled into it um i'm sure, you know, one day in the future that I will do another startup again, because I love startups. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but for now, um, working out pretty well here.
0: You know, you know, what'd be interesting to know is what's the development methodology like at a place like Twitter? I mean, how do you guys track to tasks or to do items and, you know, how do you,
2: um, so each team, I, as far as I know, each team has a lot of scope, at deciding, uh, that themselves.
0: Um, okay, so one may you be using Asana, and the other one may be using. Oh, we're, tar- we're all
2: using. Um, I'm not sure how much I can say about the internal tools. Um, we're all using the same tools, um, but as for like Agile or Scrum or whatever, uh, that's very much up to the teams.
0: Oh, and but you have like you have like between bug tracking and, and oh yes, and yes, deployment yeah, tools, Absolutely.
2: That's yeah, that's still standardized.
0: And, and do you have? It's an internal. You have your own internal bug tracking tools. You don't use an, an external. Uh, um,
2: yeah, uh, I probably, <laughs> sorry, uh, maybe I'm being too tight lipped, but, uh, I <laughs> can't, yeah. can't
0: say it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, what, what is the, what is the, um, I don't know, what's the intensity level like at a place like Twitter? I mean, I would imagine if you were to, when you're in a really early version of Twitter, it might've been super intense where people were pulling all nighters and working around the clock. But I mean, I imagine the engineering, the infrastructure is pretty solid, It might. It runs. It's a bigger company now. I mean, is it still like startup hours and people working weekends, or is it pretty much reasonable? (laughs) Oh, it's it's
2: it's it's much. It's more reasonable. I mean, depends at times when you had to get like the new um, Twitter launch out, then people absolutely working um, as hard as they can. Um, But yeah, with the size of a big company comes a lot of flexibility when it comes to. you know, the amount of work we do. We all work hard, but we work reasonable hours, definitely.
1: So, Alex, um, right. we're kind of getting to the point where we need to wrap this up, but I'm wondering if there's anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to bring up.
2: I, th- I think um, most of that is covered. Um, yeah, I'm working on a, a ton of new open source projects like um, Mac um, Gap um, and a, a few other ones, uh, along with the Spine ecosystem like Spine Mobile. But most of those, if people are interested in those, they can just go to. GitHub.com slash MacMan. Everything is there. Um, yeah, that's about it. Thank you. And very what's much. your uh, Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is MacMan, M A C C M A N.
0: Okay, great. Well, um, Alex, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to come on the show. It was, it was a lot of fun uh, hearing your uh, your travel stories and and all about your books and everything you've done, which is an impressive amount because you're only, what, like 23? 23? Uh, 22 now. i think let's see so justin if we added our last two inner guests ages together they'd be about your age yeah thanks is that what we're saying (laughs) which is basically (laughs) your age my friend (laughs) don't forget it (laughs) yeah well all right uh that's a wrap we're out